Over the past few years, I've had the joy of just reading through some history, in particular history on war. And it's been fascinating to look back and think about the events that have helped shape our country. One particular war that has intrigued me is a civil war. And during the Civil War, early on, there was a man named George McClellan who was appointed commander of the armies. He was given the opportunity to lead the federal army against the Confederates. And McClellan was known for his good organization. He was gifted in his ability to train soldiers. He was able to create good morale for the troops. But McClellan was also known for a key fault, a key weakness. Battle after battle, McClellan would give into fears that the Confederate troops always outnumbered his own. So early on in the, in the war, McClellan and his troops were so close to victory, they could hear the bells in Richmond. So they're on their way pursuing the Confederates. They were almost there, but he gave into fear that his 100,000 plus men weren't enough to, conf- to beat the Confederates. And so they stopped short. They end up having to retreat because of their failure to press forward. Later, another battle in Antietam, the bloodiest single day on American soil, 22,000 deaths. McClellan kept back an entire corps of fresh troops out of fear that Lee would come with some kind of counterattack. Here were 20 to 40,000 men who never even saw battle that day because of his fears. So though McClellan was constantly asking Washington for more men, more resources, always fearing that he was outnumbered, he failed to realize that he had everything he needed for the task that was in front of him. Like everything was at his disposal, but he gave into the fears constantly. As Christians, we've been given a different sort of task. A task to share the gospel with our neighbor. A task to make disciples of all nations. This morning, I'm assuming that you already know, Matthew 28, 19, that we are called as Christians to go make disciples. That's something we're, we're building off of that assumption this morning. But when we think about crossing over that threshold and sharing the gospel with somebody, like there's a lot of fear that comes in our hearts, isn't there? Imagine a moment when the conversation with your neighbor or coworker or family member starts to open. It looks like the Lord is providing like some kind of gospel opportunity and, and the conversation moves in a direction. You think, okay, I can maybe like weave this in and talk about Jesus. And you're about to put your foot over the threshold, but fear takes hold. Fear of many things takes hold of your heart and keeps you from moving forward in the conversation. So the story of George McClellan is not that different from our own stories. He had everything at his disposal, yet he gave into the fears, and we have everything at our disposal, yet sometimes we give into the fears of our hearts instead of following God in faithfulness. We fear rejection, rejection of those we're trying to share the gospel with. We fear stumbling over our words, like maybe I just can't say the right things or I'll fumble all over myself. We fear changing the relationship. Like, what if they don't like me anymore? Like, what will I do then? This morning, I want to point us to three promises that I I trust will encourage your hearts. Promises that remind us that God has given to us everything we need for the task he's placed before us. 
He's given us promises that will hopefully encourage us to take that step across the threshold and share the gospel with our neighbor and coworkers and family and friends and even to take the gospel to the unreached. So here they are. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 has the first two promises. I'm just going to show them to you in the text. But you will, that's the first promise, receive power. So point number one, you will receive power. Later in verse 8, and you will be my witnesses. Point number two. And then down in verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So three promises, three wills in our passage that I hope will encourage you this morning. So here's point number one. You will receive power. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And our question is, like, what is this power? And if you know Acts, maybe you've got some thoughts rolling through your mind already on this, but this power is the Spirit's presence with the believer. So just kind of jump over to chapter 2, verse 3. It's on the same page. If you're looking for it, it's page 909 in my Bible, in the Pew Bible. But chapter 2, verse 3 says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. So here the disciples are receiving the Spirit. The Spirit is coming on them in tongues of fire. And then from this passage forward, if you follow the storyline, they're able to speak in tongues and it just wows all the people that they're speaking in their known languages. So the power of the Spirit is evident already. They're able to speak in languages. But in response, the people ask this question, what does this mean? Like, what, what is all of this about? And some assume these men must be drunk. And Peter, later in chapter 2, points to Joel chapter 2, a key passage when we think about the presence of the Spirit. He says, this passage is being filled among you now. So when we think about the power, we're talking about the Spirit's presence with his people. I think it's likely the reason why these are tongues of fire is to remind us of the presence of God. Now think fiery bush and Exodus chapter 3. So here the Spirit is giving them his very presence, God's very presence in through that unique power. Now, if you read the book of Acts, it's pretty amazing what happens. Here's an example of power that God works through the apostles. Peter he was not only able to heal crippled men, but in Acts chapter 5, we see that even his shadow would bring healing to people. Can you just imagine the scene? Like, there's Peter walking down the street and like, oh, let's just get that lame man just to be in the shadow of Peter. And then, wow, he's healed. Like, that's amazing. Or in Acts 19, Paul, they would take handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin. And then they would take it over to someone who was demon-possessed or or needing healing, and they would touch them with it. And guess what happened? They were healed. Like, that's some serious power. Yet we need to understand that this is a unique season in the life of the church, and these miraculous gifts were used to confirm their message, used to confirm that this message they're proclaiming is the true message. But this doesn't mean we are given the leftovers of the apostles' feast. It's not like we're given like little crumbs on the table, like good luck, you get a little something. It's not as though the Spirit's power is diminishing like an old light bulb that gets dimmer and dimmer. No, the Spirit's power is still very much the same. And the same Spirit that's in them is in us today. So then our question is, how is this power still evident? Like, how do we still see it? Like, how does this connect to my life today? And 
I think one of the main examples we see through the book of Acts is the Spirit's ability to give boldness to his followers. The Spirit gives boldness to the followers of Christ. Boldness to step across the threshold, so to speak. And I want to just give you a couple examples in a way to encourage you. First of all, we see boldness to declare. Like, like Peter, Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times. You remember that, right? We know the story of Peter. He was fearful of possible persecution or whatever was going through his heart in that moment. But now we meet a different sort of Peter who's been now filled with the Spirit and who has boldness to proclaim Jesus in the face of thousands of people. In Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon, he's preaching of the death, the resurrection, ascension of Christ. And later in the chapter, it tells us that 3,000 souls are brought to Christ. I mean, that's amazing. The same Peter who denied Jesus. Later in chapter 3, after this lame beggar is healed, this lame beggar who was over 40, so he was very, very old. He was uh, lame since birth. He had been healed and it was just mind-blowing for the people. Like here this guy was and he's, he's healed and people are clinging around Peter now and he stands up and he proclaims the gospel. Like this is the Peter that we're seeing now in Acts. He has boldness to proclaim. Look over in Acts chapter 4. The story continues from there. In Acts chapter 4, we see the story just continue to flow. And what happens is these religious leaders, they can't allow this good deed to go unpunished or unnoticed. So acting out of annoyance, they lock up Peter and John. If you look at chapter 4, verse 7, they ask them this question. It's a very interesting question. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now later, Peter will explain in the name of Jesus. And you can read later on your own. But they're recognizing something amazing has just happened. This lame man has been healed. Like, how did this come to be? Verse 8 is what I want you to see. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Like, Peter had boldness to speak for Christ because the Spirit had been given to him. Like God gave him the ability to preach and proclaim these messages and then in a way of somewhat defense of his own faith and what had happened, he's able to stand up and speak words because the Spirit had given him that ability. Now scroll down to verse 13. So here's the religious leader's response to this. Now when they saw the, look at this word, boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Did you catch that? Like Peter had boldness to proclaim and declare the gospel. Like because they had been with Jesus and the Spirit was in them, they were able to proclaim. Like that's encouraging for us to see. Here's another example in the same passage, going a little further. They had boldness to stand firm. So opposition started to come and these religious leaders were wanting them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. Like, okay, like we're going to punish you. Now don't talk about Jesus anymore, okay? And here's Peter's response in verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So now the pressure was on them. Peter and John, they could have said, you know what? All right, we won't talk about Jesus We'll find some other creative way to share the gospel, some easier way. But no, that's not what they do. 
They go back to the authority of God in their life and say, all right, we're, we're sticking with him. Like we're standing firm on this truth. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were told no longer to speak of Jesus, but they remained faithful. They boldly stood firm. How? Because of the spirit that God had given to them. Here's one more example. Boldness to die. If you fast forward in the book of Acts to chapter 6 and 7, you'll see the story of Stephen. When the religious leaders could not outwit Stephen because he was filled with the spirit and with wisdom, they raised up these false witnesses so they could accuse him and punish him. And so they gave Peter, or Stephen excuse me, an opportunity to preach. And there's this really long sermon, chapter 7, powerful sermon, where he points out to them, you guys never listened to the messengers God had given to you. In fact, you kill them. And what I want to show you is in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, the response to all of this. So these religious leaders, they're hearing this story, and Stephen is calling out their sin, their own wrong. And verse 54 says this. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and the ground and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Stephen was stoned to death for his boldness in sharing the gospel. He was willing to give his own life for the sake of the gospel and he boldly stood till the very end. And the reason I share this is not so much because I think we're going to have the same situation as Stephen in the next few days or years. Like who knows what the Lord has, but to show you how far boldness goes. It doesn't stop short. Like it goes all the way to death itself. Like boldness through the Spirit will go all the way that we need it to. So the boldness that the Spirit provides gives us everything we need to declare the gospel and to boldly proclaim it even in the face of death itself. So church, here's my question for you. If this is the case, why are we so afraid to cross the threshold? Why are we so fearful to engage people in conversation about Jesus? We have the Spirit. And the Spirit has given us power and the ability to, to say things that maybe we wouldn't have the strength to say on our own, but he helps us in that moment. Like, why is it that we back down? And trust me, I have backed down many times from opportunities the Lord has given to share the gospel. And we think, why do I do that? Why do I give into fear? It's because I forget that God has given to me everything that I need. I focus on my fears rather than focus on the one who has provided the spirit to give me strength in that moment. There's another question I think we need to think through in this, in this passage is who has the spirit? Because not everyone just gets the spirit. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, in Acts 16 31, we, we read of repentance needed for salvation and belief and faith in Christ needed for salvation. And it's when we've trusted in Christ that we get the Spirit. So you might be asking this morning, like, how do I get the Spirit? Or you might need to ask yourself, do I even have the Spirit? Like, am I actually a Christian? Have I repented of my sin and turned to Christ in faith? Like, is this true for you? 
Church, let me encourage you. If you have turned to Christ in faith, you have the Spirit. Like, you have the Spirit of God with you now. So let's stop living like we don't and let's start living like we do have the Spirit and, and trust Him. So I want to just boil this down to a couple applicational thoughts as we think about this particular point. Where do we go from here? And I think what's really fitting for us is, again, going back to Acts 4 and seeing how this story we've been kind of following for a few moments here, how it finishes out. Now remember, these disciples, Peter and John, have been beaten. They've been told not to speak in Jesus' name. They were released, so they go to their church family and they tell them all the things that had happened. And so they begin to pray. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray for comfort. They don't pray for their injuries to be healed. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God over those who oppose God. And then they pray this in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Listen to these words. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Church, the powerful presence of the Spirit is what gave them boldness. And here is what they're doing. They're praying and they're asking the Lord to give them boldness to declare, to stand firm, to even be bold unto death. So let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for boldness in our conversations with the lost people that God has placed right next to us. As the holidays approach, we know this is a season where we have maybe more opportunities for conversations. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Maybe it's a family member who is lost and doesn't know Christ. Maybe it's a neighbor who you've been just been wanting to know, like, how can I engage them in a conversation? And you've been fearful, like myself, and you've wondered, how do I, how do I step across that threshold? We pray for boldness. We pray that the Spirit would give us boldness to speak. We pray that the Spirit would give us boldness to step across the threshold and engage them in conversation. Yes, we don't know how they're going to respond. We don't know if they're going to reject us or if our relationship will change or if we'll have the right words, but we trust the Lord. We trust his spirit. This is the second just thought for us. We pray for boldness, but friends, let's trust the spirit. Let's trust the spirit that God has given to us. Let's trust the promise keeper himself who has said, you have power through the spirit that I've given. Think about it this way. We want to be able to trust the promise like a young child trusting his father. Walking down the sidewalk and this young child has no fears in that moment because next to him is his father. He doesn't fear the people around him. He doesn't fear stumbling and falling. He doesn't fear any of that because his little hand is wrapped up in his father's hand. And so he's able to walk down that sidewalk day after day after day trusting because that father has proved himself over and over and over and over again to be faithful. Like, that's our hope. Like, we have a father who is a promise keeper, and he's saying, listen, I've given you my spirit. Like, why are you afraid to cross the threshold? I'm there, I'm holding your hand, and you don't have to fear. Like, that's the hope we have this morning. 
So church, let's trust the promises of God. Let's trust the goodness that he's provided everything we need to make disciples for him. Here's promise number two. You will be my witnesses. Now, the second promise is built on the first promise, similar to the taste of a good pizza being built on the quality of its ingredients. Now, if anyone knows thing about pizza, I'm not going to brag, but I am a youth pastor. So I know a thing or two about pizza. I've eaten a few pizzas in my life. And if you tell me you have the best pizza in town, and then you show me that can of pizza sauce that's from 1999 that you pull out of the cupboard, dated for 1999 to be clear, and that mozzarella that's in the fridge, it's got a little blue and green on it, and you pull that out of your fridge, you're like, yeah, I've got the best pizza. You just wait. Friends, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter how hot you eat that oven up. It's still not going to take care of that, okay? So you pull all that out, and I'm, gonna t- I'm not going to believe you. I'm not going to believe your, your promise that, yeah, this is the best pizza in town. But if you show me the fresh, the fresh tomatoes that you've just blended up, and add a little garlic and salt, making you hungry, aren't I? And you, and you put that on your freshly made pizza dough, and you've got your freshly shredded mozzarella, and you're just putting all that, like, I'm going to believe you. Like, your pizza's going to be good. And if you really have good pizza, come see me later, okay? And here, here's the thing, though. Like, the promise of, like, what you said is built on the quality of the first thing. So the first promise, like, you have the spirit. Now we have the assurity of the second promise. It is built on the first. Like, you've been given the spirit. We know that. We see that throughout the book of Acts. Now you will be my witnesses. Like, we can be confident of that because of the first one. So think about what this second promise is saying. You will be my witnesses. Because I was thinking about that this week, I kept wondering, how can God, like, guarantee something like that? How can God guarantee something so good? Is it because we're gifted with words? Like, we're really charismatic, and we just know, we know, like, the, the line to say to somebody, so they become a Christian, like, we're really good at that. We know that's not the case. The confidence of this promise is not in us. The confidence is in the God who works to complete it. The confidence we have in this promise that you will be witnesses is in the fact that we have this great promise keeper and he's able to use our failed attempts for his purposes. Now this promise does assume something. It assumes that we're going to walk in steps of obedience to follow the Lord. Like it's assuming that you and I are saying, all right, Lord, I'm willing to cross a threshold and I'm trusting that when my foot lands on the other side that you will help me be the witness I need to be. So our question as we think through that, what does it look like for us to be faithful witnesses then? If we know that we need to take active steps to see this promise fulfilled, Like, what does it look like? And let's just break this promise down for a moment. We are witnesses of Jesus. So when you see this word my, it's talking about Jesus. Like, we are his witnesses. We belong to him. We are representing him. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are here as those who are identified as witnesses for God. We are his ambassadors. Like this is part of our identity. We're followers of Jesus. We're disciples. We're Christians. We're witnesses who are like for Jesus representing him. Now I want to be clear about something. 
We are not some kind of wooden ambassador. So like think about the vacuum salespeople who come to your door and they knock on it and they've got those great liners that convince you that their vacuum, oh, it'll pick up all the dirt. It'll even help your kids when they're crazy. It'll do everything for you. Just for 72 payments of $19.99, it's all yours, okay? Like you just gotta like bite on the hook and they'll pull you right along. Like that's not what we're talking about. When we are witnesses of Jesus, and it goes much deeper than that. I think of what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They are gripped by the message they are proclaiming. It's not just some wooden message just to get another person in the church. No, it is a message that has deeply changed them. It's a message that's transformed these disciples and us. And so as witnesses of Jesus, we're identified with him and we're proclaiming a message that has radically changed us. While we're here on this earth, let's not confuse our identity. We are witnesses of Jesus, ambassadors, telling the world of the message of the gospel that has radically changed us. Like, that's what we need to remember this morning. We're witnesses for the gospel, for of Jesus, like we are his ambassadors. Now we're proclaiming something, the gospel itself. The disciples were like eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They saw all of it. And so in a very true sense, they are the eyewitnesses. They've seen everything. And we're building off of their witness in the word of God. Like our confidence is resting in the fact that God has allowed them to see all of these things and then tell us about it through his word. So what about us though? We haven't seen Christ visibly. We haven't touched his hands. What kind of witness are we? We are witnesses to the same gospel message that they were. We're witnesses who are passing on what they have conveyed to us. And we're saying, yes, this is true because it has changed my life. And now I'm able to tell you about Jesus because, man, Jesus has radically changed me. But here's my question this morning. If we're called to be witnesses for the gospel, could you define this morning what the gospel is? If I told you you had 60 seconds to tell me and explain the message of the gospel, like think in your head for a second, what would you say? Like what components of the gospel do you think are important? One of the ways that has been helpful for me thinking of like the actual message, what is it, are four terms. And if you're in youth group, you've heard these terms a lot, at least especially more recently. The first term is God. Second term, man. Third term, Jesus. Fourth term, response. If you can think in those four terms, you can pull in the truth of the gospel in a very, very simple way, a very helpful way. So God, he's our creator. We sang about him this morning. He's holy. He's created all of us. Here comes man who's been created to glorify God, enjoy him forever. But then through Adam, all mankind is plunged into sin. And now we're unable to reconcile with God because of our sin. We can't be reconciled because of our sin and God is a holy God. And so we're broken off. The relationship is broken and there's nothing we can do in of ourselves to be brought to God. But then here's the third term, Jesus. He took on flesh so that he could live the life we could never live. To die the death we deserve to die so that we could be reconciled to God the Father. 
Christ paid for our sin. He applied his righteousness to us. Like, that is good news. But not just anybody gets to be brought to to God in reconciliation. There's a step. There's a response. The response is we need to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus in faith. We need to turn away from our sin and then turn to Christ. Is our Christ? I'm trusting that your righteousness, that your work on the cross, that all of it, that it's enough. Like, there's the gospel. Maybe you can't talk as fast as I do. Maybe you don't have it written out. But if you can think in terms of four pieces of the gospel, God, man, Jesus, response, like this helps us think about the message we're supposed to be proclaiming. Church, we have to know how to explain it. If we're going to be faithful witnesses, we need to know what the gospel actually is. Maybe this morning you're hearing these words and you're thinking, I don't even know if I believe that. Can I just encourage you to come talk to someone this morning? If you don't, like if you don't have salvation, if you don't have Christ, if you haven't been reconciled to him, like come talk to one of us so we can show you who he is. Maybe you're struggling to understand it. Let me just encourage you to come talk to us so, so that you can be a faithful witness who knows, like, yeah, this is the gospel message. I know, like, this is what I need to share with my, my coworker or my neighbor or my, my friends and my family. Here's a third part of this promise. We are witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus points to the ends of the earth and he says, you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the book of Acts, we don't have time to do this, but it goes on to show how these steps are taking place. So they're in Jerusalem and all of these people are coming to know Christ and then Stephen's death takes place and persecution comes and all of a sudden the people just disperse into Judea and Samaria and then we see churches taking people like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and sending them out, like sending them out further to outposts like Rome so that the gospel can go all the way to the ends of the earth. That's really just the structure of the book of Acts. But this same task is there for us today. You and I are to be faithful witnesses, even as we read this morning in our church covenant, locally and globally. Like this is our task. This is what should be in front of us. This is, this is the calling God has placed on us. And while this promise is given to us that you will be witnesses, we, again, need to take steps and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to be your witness locally and globally. I'm going to trust that your spirit's there, that your promise is true. And so, church, we need to take those steps. So, parents, can I talk to you for a second about this particular point? Are we raising our kids to set their eyes on the gospel needs locally and globally? Are we raising our kids to have a heart for the lost? Are we instilling in them a deep love for the gospel so that they can be those arrows that are shot out into the darkness, bringing the gospel to lost people? Like, is that our heart as parents? Like, are we thinking about that? I want to just give you a couple resources that have been helpful for my family. Maybe it would be helpful for your family. As you think about how to get their eyes fixed on the needs locally and globally, here's one. It's a book called Window on the World by Operation World. Window on the World is a shorter book that summarizes various countries in great need, people groups, has prayer points, great pictures, helpful for kids. So parents, let me just encourage you, like grab a book like this and work through it with your kids so that their eyes begin to see, okay, Life is not all about me. Like there are people around the world who need Christ. Like we need to instill that in their hearts. Parents, can I encourage you? 
pray for the missionary of the week throughout the week. Like we hear it every Sunday morning, like at dinner time or at your prayer times, like, all right, we're praying for the hunts this week. And your, your kids can start to get to know these missionaries and realize, well, they're in Zambia. Like, that's awesome. Like, all right, let's pray for them. Like, give them a hunger and a thirst for the unreached, for the people who need Christ. There's countless other resources. An app by Joshua Project, which gives you the unreached people group of the day. Like, every day you can be looking at that. Open Doors presents this watch list booklet that tells you all the most persecuted countries in the world. Like, there's tons of resources to instill in ourselves and our kids a love for the gospel locally and globally. Church, what about us? How are we being witnesses locally and globally? We don't want to settle into a pattern of comfort and ease. It's all inward focus. Like we want to have a passion and a love for Christ that leads us to think about the people outside of these walls. So maybe this morning you can be helping us as a church think through, okay, there are lost people in our community. How do we reach them? It's not just a pastor's job. Like you all are witnesses. We're all part of this task together. Maybe it means getting behind people like Emmanuel Juma, like Pastor Nate talked about this morning, and just saying, yes, like we want to see Christians in South Sudan. Like, church, are you excited about that? Are you passionate about the unreached over there? Maybe it means we as a church are saying we are ready to send people out because we have to go. Like, we can't stay. Church, are you ready to send people? Are you ready for people to leave? Like, that needs to be our burden in our heart. Do you trust the promise? Do you trust the promise that God has equipped you for the work that he has called you to? Are you willing to trust the spirit that he has given you everything you need to be a faithful witness for him? Like, do you trust him? And if so, let's take obedient steps so that we can see the promise keeper fulfill yet another promise again and again and again. Here's point number three. Jesus will return again. Now this third promise is unlike the first two. The first two are coming from Jesus' own lips to his disciples. This third promise is coming from the angels to the disciples. This promise of Jesus' return speaks to the hopes of the disciples for the establishment of the kingdom. Now I just want to give a little context here. If we go back to chapter 1 verse 6, we're backing up in our passage before Jesus is charged to them with these two promises. The disciples ask this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now on like the face there, it seems like these knucklehead disciples are at it again, like, all right, Lord, like when are you going to do your thing? We just can't wait. But that's not what's happening here. Like Jesus has been teaching them, even back in verse 3, during the 40 days he spent with them after his resurrection, he's teaching them about the kingdom. And then there's this promise, like the Spirit's coming. Okay, the Spirit's coming. Well, that means the end's coming, Joel 2. But the disciples didn't realize there's a break between the Spirit coming and Christ's kingdom being established. So Jesus responds in verse 7, chapter 1, It is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, like, let that be to God. Let God worry about the timing of all this. But then let's skip down now to verses 9 to 11. Now let's just pull these together for a second. So the disciples are hopeful the kingdom will come. They want it to come. But there's a break between, like, the Spirit coming and the time when Jesus will come and bring his kingdom. So verse 11, 
Jesus has just ascended into the clouds, leaving the disciples staring up into heaven with his heavenly days. And these angels appear and they say these words, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So once again, the disciples are reminded that the timing for the kingdom is delayed. Christ is not just coming down in just a moment with the kingdom. Christ is not about to just like go grab it and come back down and then there is going to be established for them. There's a time of wait. There's a time between the coming, the ascension, excuse me, and the second coming of Christ. There's a time between his rising up into heaven and the time when he comes again to establish his kingdom. And this is where we are right now. Like we're between those two points in, in the history of what God's going to do in redemption. We, we're here in between. And so this question to the disciples reminds them that, okay, you've got work to do. You've got a task now in front of you as you wait for this promise to come. Surely this promise gives us encouragement, doesn't it? The day that Jesus will return. Is that not something we look forward to? Like more and more in our world, we see the chaos, we see the brokenness, the hurt, the hardships. We think, man, Lord, it'll be great when you come. And that is so true. We're thankful for that truth. And even this morning as we partake in communion in just a few moments, like we're, we're looking forward to Christ coming back. Like we do this to say, yeah, like he's coming. We can't wait for that. But church, this promise does give us hope, but it also reminds us that there is something we should be doing until we see Jesus face to face. We're never off duty. There's not a point in our life where we're like, well, I've been a Christian witness long enough, or well, I've had the Spirit's power long enough. No, we're given this task until we see Jesus face to face. Like when we see him, then we know our job here is done. We know our timing is complete. The promise we are given will hold true until he comes. We know he's given us his spirit. We know he will be helping us to be witnesses. And this will hold true all the way until we see him face to face. I want to direct your eyes to Acts chapter 20 verse 24. My prayer this morning is that this will become your heart cry. That these words of Paul would become your focus while we wait for that glorious promise when Christ will return. Remember right now that we are here. We're not seeing Christ face to face yet. So we have something to be focused on. Paul says this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like, is that your heart this morning? Is that your heart cry? Like, let this be your prayer today. Lord, I want one focus, one thing that matters to me most, more than anything else, and that's to make known the gospel of grace. Like, that's where my heart needs to be. Let this be your aim this morning. As we wait for the Savior's return, let us be faithful witnesses because God has given to you everything you need to cross the threshold. He's given you all you need to, to start that conversation with your neighbor. All you need to pack up your bags and move across the country or across the world. He's given you everything. This is the promise keeper and he will not fail us. Like that's our hope this morning. 
This morning we're going to partake in one of the ordinances I've already mentioned at the Lord's Supper. And this is our time to remember what Christ has done for us. And I was thinking about the words that Nate's going to be reading in a few moments. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we come here, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. And they're reminded, yeah, he's coming. But it also reminds us, okay, we're here right now. Like, what are we doing with our life right now? Are we trusting the promises that he's given to us? Are we trusting that he's given to you everything you need to cross the threshold, to share the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, for the example and acts. And there's so much there for us to encourage us, Lord, that we too can have boldness, to encourage us that, Lord, your spirit is in us. If we've come to faith in Christ, Lord, this is, like, this is really good news. Lord, would you help us as a church to not forget that, to remember you've given to us everything that we need. Lord, help us to trust you. Father, help us to trust the promise keeper. Help us to tr trust the one who's given us these two promises and then the, the hope of your future return, Lord. Help us to remember that you will help us to cross the threshold. Help us to start the conversation about you, Lord. Help us to be willing witnesses this week. Father, would you grant us as a church boldness? Father, would you help us this morning to be bold in sharing our faith? Not ashamed of it? Lord, help us not to be afraid. Lord, help us to trust you, Lord. You know people in our lives right now who are, who are lost, Lord, who need us to, to be willing to enter into conversation with them. Lord, help us to be bold for you. God, help us to trust you, Lord. We have a hard time trusting that your promises are good. Lord, help us to trust you this morning that your promises, they will be fulfilled time and time and time again. Father, help us to raise up in our church young people, who love the lost. Lord, give us that heart. Help us to raise up people who, who care for the lost around them, Lord, who are constantly thinking about the lost around the world and give that heartbeat to us as a church, Lord. Help us to get behind that, Lord, to be thinking about how we can partner with people to share the gospel with the lost. Lord, please give us that burden. Father, help us to rest in this promise that you will return with great hope this morning. And then, Father, I pray that you give each of us in this room a deep longing, a longing to share this good gospel of grace with the people who are lost. Father, thank you for what you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.